want to thank the dear brother for his prayers and uh, for your kind words. He prayed for unction. Whenever someone prays for unction, they're serious. They, uh, they know what they're talking about. That, as the Puritans would call it, that sudden fire that falls upon the word of God and the man preaching the word of God. Um, so amen. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you, uh, Reverend Craig. I have a, a deep and abiding love for a Redeemer Presbyterian. So when, when he says that he made his best effort, I assure you that he is not exaggerating that he made his best effort. Um, and as I shared with them and the elders uh, of the church is, you know, when you get saved, right, when you first come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, you spend most of your time trying to gather the strength to say no to bad things, to sin, to idolatry, to self-comfort and pleasure. And that's where a lot of your energy goes. And as you grow in the Christian life and mature, you still say no to those things, but then you find yourself in wisdom and in maturity saying no to good things Um, because there are a million needs and there are a million people who need you to do more and more and more. At some point in your Christian life, you have to get to a point where you just know where you should be. Um, And anyone who's ever felt that knows that saying yes to something always means saying no to something else. And unfortunately, as much as I love uh, Craig and all the elders here, and especially you all here, um, that was the no for me. Um, But take take heart, take encouragement. That's you. I mean, if you're struggling with what to do, um, don't look at need because there are a never-ending supply of needs. Look at calling. Um, See what the Lord, see how the Lord has wired you, has gifted you, see what opportunities he has put in front of you. And, and pursue that with reckless abandon. So that has nothing to do with my sermon today. That was, that was completely free, so we won't. No charge for that. Um, we're going to be in Second Peter uh, today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it up. because so I want us to read these verses together. We're only going to read a few verses. Uh, so I want us to see them, to feel them, to hear them together. As you're turning, just tell you a story from my past. In high school, I played sports like many of you do in, in, in high school. And one of the sports I played was track. Um, I ran track. Now, for many people, track was a very serious event. Track was a way to get scholarships. It was a way to compete. It was a way to win. It was a way to, to, to advance themselves in their life. For me, I ran track because all my friends ran track, and I would have nothing to do for two hours after school if I didn't hang out with them. So for me, it was a completely social endeavor. Um, but for many who ran track, it was life and death. So as you can imagine, um, high school sports and high school track meets were serious. They were serious. And if you've ever run track, you know that the worst event ever, other than cross country, that's ridiculous. Um, anyway, I have a cross country story I'll tell you later. It involves me falling over and almost dying. But um, other than cross country, the, one of the worst events in track is the 400. It's the yes, you know, Right? <laughs> It's the 400. That, that's the thing. Even the people who run it don't like it. Like, you have to be drafted to run the 400 because it's a full-out sprint for a quarter of a mile, right? It's too short to kind of pace yourself, so you can't really work up. But so you're running at flat-out 100% of your speed for a quarter of a mile, which, if you don't know, is longer than any human being should have to run that fast. <laughs> and so it is a grueling, grueling race. And so... And I've run it only a few times, um, but as, I, as you go through the first leg, the second leg, third leg, usually the point of decision is that last leg. 
you're rounding the curve, and for the first time, you can actually see the finish line. Now, at this point, your entire body is screaming at you to slow down. Your entire body is screaming to relent. Every breath you take is filled with fire and flame, and you start to question your own mortality <laughs> and wonder if this is the big one, if this is, this is finally it for you. Um, you start questioning your reality, like, why am I doing this? I'm in high school. I should be having fun. Like you, all these things are happening in your mind and in your body as you cross this last leg. But at my, at my high school, we had this, this coach and I don't, maybe he ran the 400 for years and just knew the pain. But at every track meet that we had, he would stand right at the, the, the bend of the curve, right before the last straightaway. And he would be yelling like a raving lunatic on the sidelines because he would be encouraging everyone. He'd be screaming at the top of his lungs, run faster, go, you're almost there, you're almost there, keep it up. He would call you out by name in the midst of all your competitors just to encourage you. And for a, a brief few seconds, as you barreled past this older man of encouragement, the pain seemed to go away just a little bit, became to be a little bit easier to breathe. And whether you won or lost didn't matter so much as the fact that you found yourself running a little bit faster, just a little bit faster from the encouragement of this man on the sidelines. And so that's my goal today. That's all I want to be, is I want to be the raving lunatic on the sidelines, cheering you all on to just run a little bit faster in this race of faith, to run a little bit harder in this life of grace, recognizing that it's not just you running by yourself as it was in a track meet. It's not a solo event, but you are fueled with the Spirit. You are covered in grace, and you are endowed with purpose. And through those means, I hope to encourage you through Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to read these four verses, and then we're going to, we're going to pray. Read with me Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'll read aloud. You read silently. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Let's pray. Father, we, I need you now. As it has been prayed, God, we pray for unction. We pray for the sudden filling of the Spirit through the revealing of your word for the edification of your saints and for the glory of your church. We pray that you would open these scriptures to our hearts and to our minds. That you will encourage the faint-hearted. That you will strengthen the weak. That you will endow with purpose and call the wanderer. That you will save the lost, Father. Do these things through your word and through your power. 
And may we all celebrate today the grace of God in fresh and new ways. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So only a few verses, verses 1 through 4. Two verses are what are called a formal introduction. The other verses are merely a, a setup to what Peter wants to get to in this book. Now, the entire book of Second Peter is actually about false teachers. In his, in his previous epistle, First Peter, he was really encouraging those who were being persecuted. And he follows this book up about three years later with writing to warn and admonish those who are believers in the faith to avoid false teaching, to avoid the allure of self-idolatry, and to stay the course with the true and righteous faith. But as he's setting that up, he begins with what I believe are some pretty ridiculous words, but they are holy and they are inspired, so they must be taken seriously. But I believe they're filled with great promises. So we're going to just walk through verse by verse these four verses and just see what God has to say to us. Fair enough? Amen. All right. Chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter begins with a very interesting statement. He begins with that customary greeting. In most Greek writing, you begin with who's writing and to whom you're writing to. But he says to those he is writing to, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing by ours, with ours. To those who have obtained, who is he writing to? To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. Now, don't fall into the temptation like many of us and myself especially do and just rush past the intros to these books. Oftentimes, the first few book verses of, a, of an epistle, of a letter, will contain rich, rich promises of God. And this is one of those. Peter is saying that the people who are, to whom I'm writing are those who have equal standing with ours, who have attained a faith that is equal to ours. Who is this ours he's talking about? He's talking about the other apostles. He's saying, I'm writing to believers and Christians who have the same faith as the apostles. Now, when I read that, I asked myself, do I believe that? I mean, these men wrote the New Testament. They walked on water. They did miracles that I have yet to see or do. They sat and ate with Jesus. He reclined on the table. They were with him in person. We've seen, or I've seen the, the shirts that says kind of, you know, Jesus is my homeboy. You ever seen those shirts? Some of you, right? All the college students. Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. Although I think that shirt's a little reductive and maybe inappropriate. Like if anyone could have said that and it be true, it would be the apostles. And here Peter is saying that we have equal footing and standing in faith with them. And I struggled with that, and I, and I think that many of us may struggle with that. There is, in our minds, a class of Christian to which we do not belong. There are the people who preach and teach, and they're up front, and they're doing great things. And then there's the rest of us. There's the missionary dying on the field for the cause of Christ, and then there's the stay-at-home mom. There's the preacher and the teacher, then there's the CEO and the public school worker, and the custodian, and somehow we have put those people into different faith brackets, and maybe we have put ourselves in one of those lesser brackets. So before we get to the great promises of God, we must fight the temptation to exclude ourselves from its effects, to exclude ourselves and say, no, that's for them. That's for the professional Christian, the person who gets paid to love Jesus, like the elders of churches do. No, this as Peter is saying, is for all. 
because we all have equal standing in faith. Yes, the effects of faith may cause us to do different things, may cause us to start a business or start a church, may cause us to go overseas for the cause of Christ or go overseas in the military. The effects of faith are varied and different, but its portion, its share, its allotment is the same. And we all have that in common. We all have that in common. So don't exclude yourself from what we are, we're hearing today. But how can that be true? If the effects of faith are varied and different, but we all have the same amount, how can that be true? How can we all have the same amount? Keep reading in verse 1. It says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that word righteousness does not mean the atoning work of Jesus Christ, as some of us may understand it to be. It actually refers to God's justice, his impartiality, his refusal to favor some over others. Because of that attribute and characteristic of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, he has given us all equal measure of faith. And it's a gift The Apostle Peter is talking about saving faith. I know the Bible scholars are probably thinking about Romans 12, 3, and Corinthians passages where it talks about he has given us varied measures of faith. Those measures of faith are talking about gifting and service. And yes, we all have varied gifting and service, but this faith that Peter is talking about is this core essential faith that these young gentlemen have in equal measure to Spurgeon and Lewis and anyone else, we all have the same faith. So Peter is writing to you. He's writing to us. He's writing to us all. So let's hear what he has to say. He continues in his introduction in verse 2. Read it again with me. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, this is a phenomenal prayer to pray before you read the scriptures. Now, this is the new year, so many of us have started Bible reading plans. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because that number will change in the mid-year. There's grace. We'll talk about it. Right? So many of us have started either yearly devotional plans where we read through the Bible in a year, or we started some other type of devotional plan. I mean, I myself have. These are good times to do it, and those are good things to do in the new year. But the goal of these yearly reading plans, the goal of Bible reading in general is not and cannot and must not be to grow smarter. It must not be to be able to answer all the questions in a Bible trivia game alone. No, the goal of reading the Bible must always be so that our hearts would be open to the treasure and beauty of Jesus Christ himself, the power of the gospel, and that our life would be changed. And that's what Peter is praying before he even gets into the content of his letter. This is what Peter is wishing for the hearers. And this is my prayer and wish for you, that we would grow in grace and peace as we grow in our knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Further proof that this knowledge isn't just a mental or head knowledge. That word knowledge in the Greek is not gnosis, which is the typical word for knowledge and understanding. It's epinosis. It's a different Greek word right here that Peter is using to connotate a different type of knowledge. This knowledge is more experiential, more gradual, more intimate. Matter of fact, in verse 5, he talks about growing in knowledge in the same chapter, and that word knowledge is the word gnosis. But here, Peter is calling attention to a very different type of knowledge. 
that he wants us to grow in grace and peace through intimacy, through intimacy, not just Bible literacy, through intimacy with the Father in his word. So how do we know that this is what he's talking about? He set up in verse one, he's included us all into what he's about to say. In verse two, he's prayed that we will grow in grace and in the knowledge, this intimate knowledge of God. So what is he getting at? And it begins to become clear in verse three. Read with me again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us on to his own glory and excellence. This is where the portrait that Paul is painting is beginning to come into view. He began encouraging us that we have equal faith with those that even the apostles. And he can recommended our growth in grace and peace. And now notice the change in the titles of Jesus. Jesus, our savior above. In verses one and two, Jesus was alluded to being our savior and he is. Everyone was born in sin and needed someone to come rescue them. We needed rescue from our sinful desires, our self-righteousness, our own course that we put ourselves on in our worship of self. We needed a savior from that, and Jesus is that. But in his mercy, he's not just that. You see, if God just saved us and said, go do these things, go be this good person, and left us to ourself, we would find ourselves in equal despair, but no You see in verse 3, we begin to see that he is not just our, sorry, verse 2, he's not just our Savior, but he's our Lord. There is a proper response to salvation, and that is to recognize the kingship of Jesus Christ. There is a proper response to being redeemed and rescued, and that is to recognize the lordship and rulership of Jesus Christ. But if you are like me, you have, you've done that. You got saved and you said, man, I'm gonna live the right way. I'm gonna stop doing this. I'm gonna stop doing that. I'm gonna become a good Christian. Anyone nailed that one yet? So yes, we see him as savior and yes, we recognize him as Lord, but it doesn't seem to be that there is hope because although we are saved, don't we still seem broken? Like our hearts still long for what will make us comfortable, for what will make us safe. Our hearts still long at times for that which God hates. And so although we recognize his saving work and although we recognize his lordship, it seems like we need something else to live this Christian life with hope and joy. That something else is that divine power that we see in verse 3. Suspend disbelief for just a moment and pretend that everything in the Bible is true, right? Should be easy for us to do as believers. Let's pretend that everything in the Bible is true without exception and without qualification. And let's read verse 3 again, and you will feel how ridiculous this statement is. He says, his divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us, me, you, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Other translations say all things that pertain to living a godly life. Stop for a second there. 
God in his divine power has given us everything we need to live a godly life? In your experience, has that been true? In your experience, has that lived up to its promise? I know my own experience, I've wrestled with this verse because I I want it to be true, right? I want to say, yes, I have all that I need to live a godly life, but then I look at my my past. I look at the sins I commit. I look at my failures and my faults. I look at the New Year's resolutions that I start in January and fail at by March, maybe if it's a good year. And I say, God, I feel like I need something else. Yes, you've given me this divine power. Yes, you've given me this Holy Spirit. Yes, you've given me community in the church, but I feel like that's not enough. And so we look elsewhere. Do we not? We look elsewhere. We self-medicate. We make excuses. We disappear. We do anything and everything to try to add on to that divine power which God has given us because we feel it hasn't lived up to its claim. You see, even though we have been saved from the penalty of sin in eternity, we need to be saved from the power and presence of sin here and now. And so like that man running that last lap, around the track, feeling like his strength is not enough. Let me be the man on the sideline encouraging you to not go get someone else to finish the race for you, to not tag someone who's faster or stronger or smarter or better, but to dig deep and look within, not yourself as the track runner would run, but look in God's word and the beauty of Jesus Christ to unearth strength and courage and passion and holiness that you did not know was there. That is the encouragement for the Christian. Not that we need to look elsewhere, but maybe perhaps we need to look deeper. We need to dig deeper into the coffers of grace. Grace is an interesting word. It's most commonly used to denote a covering for sin. Oh, don't worry about that, brother or sister. There's grace for that. Yes, you failed. Yes, you fallen. But yes, there is grace for that. And that is true. There is no sin that can make God love us any less. There's no act of righteousness that can make God love us any more. God's affections for us are fixed because of who he is and not because of who we are. So yes, grace is the power that helps us to get back up after we have fallen. But it is also the power that fuels obedience. This divine power doesn't just call us up from the ashes. It fuels us to run forward with strength and courage and longevity in this Christian life. This divine power that is within us. If you are a believer today, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And in a sense, you need nothing else. Those gifts oftentimes are flamed in community. Those gifts oftentimes are shaped through the preaching of God's word, but in you contains the treasures of the gospel and the presence and the power of God himself. And so you don't just have a forgiveness of your sins. You have the ability to kill sin, to defeat it. Am I calling you to perfection? No, I'm calling you to progress. How awesome would it be for every New Year's to make a resolution to battle a different sin. That's how I measure my own personal growth. 
Am I still struggling with the same sins? Right? I always tell my wife, I, I, would just, I just want to struggle with different sins. Like, that's my goal in life. Like, I know we're always going to have something going on. Because the more you grow in God, the more you realize your depravity and your brokenness. I just don't want to keep struggling with the same ones. Like, let me get a new one, right? Let, let gossip be my thing. Like, let me, let me try gossip for a while. And then maybe, I don't know, laziness for a seat. Like, let me not struggle with these ones that I have. Let me get freedom from these. And that's the encouragement, dear brother and sister. As you look at this year, as you look at past years, have you grown in your fight against sin? Is the devil having to innovate new sins into your life and introduce new schemes? Or are we still falling for the same, the same old traps? I want to encourage you that if that is you, if you have found yourself in this rhythm of holiness and failure, of killing it for a season and falling, of, of devotion and then despair, if you have found yourself in this rhythm, there is a way off. There's a way off that crazy ride. And it's not something different. It's not something new. It's, it's not something that you haven't heard preached from this pulpit than every other Sunday. But what it is, is a treasure veiled and hidden. And it needs to be plumbed and it needs to be discovered and it needs to be unearthed and it needs to be drunk deeply from. You see, the gospel doesn't just save. The good news that Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose again isn't just the salvation message. It's the everyday fuel. It's what not just picks us up from our sin. It's what shoots us forward to victory over sin in our life. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge, this different knowledge word again, that epinosis word of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So how do we get this victory that I'm talking about? How can you achieve the new sin in your life? Through the knowledge of him. Through knowing and savoring and loving Jesus. It's a simple message, dear believer, but it's one that I hope to encourage you with. You're rounding the last lap and you feel that weakness set in. You feel that weariness begin to take over. And I want to be the man along with the other elders and along with your community groups, along with all the people around you cheering you on. That you have more strength in you than you realize. A great guidance counselor quote years ago. It said, if you knew you could not fail, what would you attempt? If you knew you could not fail, what would you attempt? What would you try your hand at if you took away fear? What would you do? And in the context that I heard that quote is really about finding the, the job or the, the passion of your life or the career field that you would go in. But I believe it has salience to the Christian life because if you knew you could win against sin, how hard would you really fight? If you knew you just stuck it out in grace, how hard would you really fight? Would you give up? Would you just say, well, this is just my lot to bear. I would just always struggle with this thing. I'll just always live less than what God has called me to do. I'll never live up to what I feel like God is calling me to. I'll never do that thing which God is calling me to do. I'll never be the person that I feel like God is calling me to be. Or 
if you really believe that this divine power living within you is enough, would you go to war? Would you go to flat out war? Would you take up new strength, as Hebrew says? Would you gird your loins, strengthen your hands, and prepare for war, a war that you are guaranteed to win? But a war that must be fought nonetheless. Divine power. Verse 4. Let me read verse 3 and 4 together. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Verse four, by which he, God, has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Now, church, this is what I need you to get excited Because this, this is stuff that will fuel reckless devotion for a lifetime. These words will fuel obedience and holiness and sacrifice for a lifetime with a smile on your face. Will you die as a martyr for Jesus Christ? If that's what he's calling to you, if only these words will be taken seriously. We have been given great promises. A promise that one day, Every tear will be wiped from every eye. One day, everything that is crooked will be made straight. Everything that is broken will be healed. Every body will be restored. One day, we will be free from the corruption of this life, and that is the promise for eternity. But he doesn't just leave it there. He fills us now. He says that we can become partakers, sharers in the divine nature. Now, that would be heresy if it wasn't in the Bible. If someone said that and it wasn't in the Bible, that would be heresy. This was several hundred years ago. You'd be burned at the stake for saying something. Jesus was killed because he claimed to be a partaker of the divine nature. He claimed to be God. And although we don't claim to be God, it is a ridiculous proposition to think that we can share some of that divine essence here. But that, that is the hope. That is the hope that when you go to fight sin, it's not you fighting, but God himself waging war. When you go to do the thing which God has called you to do, its success does not depend upon you and your efforts and your skill and your talent, but on God himself. And he surely will not fail, church. And most of all, we can escape this corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. What can defeat the love of sin? Only a greater love. What can defeat the power and presence of sin? Only a greater power and presence. And that's what God in Christ is offering us. You see, it's not up to us. Church, that's that's good news, right? For the confident among us, it may be a little disconcerting because you're good, right? You're, You're strong. You've been successful in life. You have achieved much, and maybe you haven't hit that wall of reality in life just yet, but I promise you, you will. 
But for the wise among us, no matter how smart, no matter how talented, no matter how much we have, no matter how much gifts we think we bring to the table, we have seen time and time again it not being enough. And that's, that's good news. That's good news because we get to share in that divine nature of God himself who calls us out of this corruption of sin. And by his grace, that that fuel, that fire that stokes the Christian life, that frees us from sin, that powers holiness and obedience, runs through our veins. And so we don't have to trust in us. We don't have to depend on us. John Piper, talking about this tension between relying on grace and working out of faith says, if you don't put to death sinful temptation by a superior satisfaction in Jesus, but only by your willpower, then you are going to get the glory and not Jesus. And that is not biblical sanctification, he says. If you don't put to death sinful temptation by Jesus, but you do it by your own willpower, you clean your life up, you get yourself together, then maybe you're successful for a season. Maybe you're successful for a time. Maybe you stop doing that thing which you've decided and committed not to do for a season. But who gets the glory from that? You do. If you do it through your bare-knuckled effort, you do. But if you who rely on Jesus Christ if you who realize that you are partakers of the divine nature, if you who realize that it's not me, but God who works within me, as Paul says in Corinthians 15. Paul says, I've worked harder than any of the apostles, but it's not I who have worked, but a spirit working in me. So this is what I want to encourage you with, dear brothers and sisters. This is the truth of our faith. This is the separating truth between the Christian faith and all other faiths. It's not about how many times you pray, how much you do for God, how much Bible you read, how much anything. It's how much you believe this promise. It's whether you believe that God has given us all that we need, that he is sufficient, that I need nothing outside of him, his word, and his people to live out this Christian life. And not just rely on grace when we fall, but rely on grace to run. To run a little bit faster and to run a little bit harder. Some of us can relate to that track metaphor, um, not just because you ran track, but because you feel that pain. You have been striving and straining and trying for so long. Maybe it's to get people to like you. Maybe it's to get acceptance, to be the person that everyone expects you to be, to do the things everyone expects you to be. And you feel like your body is failing you because you keep striving in your own effort. I want to be that man on the sideline like the other elders here do to cheer you on. Say that you are not by yourself in this race. And rerun more than for a trophy. We run in this race. There is more on the line than winning a trophy in this Christian life. But we have more than a track coach to motivate us on the sidelines. We have the Spirit of God in us. 
We have the word of God given to us. We have the power of God and the promise of God set before us. We have all that we need by his divine power to live this godly life and we can run. For my older saints, for many of you, you actually can see the finish line of life. And there is a temptation to slow and to steady and to preserve. I would challenge you to keep running. I would challenge you to round that last curve and run that last straightaway of life with more passion, more zeal, more fervor, more commitment than in all your years prior. Because at the end of the day, it's not you doing it. And when you cross that finish line of life, running faster and harder than the world says you should have, who will get the glory? God will. And brothers and sisters, young like myself, will have something to look and point to and say, yes, I want to cross the finish line like them. I want to sprint across the finish line of life knowing I gave it all and knowing that that wasn't enough. But it's okay. Because although I may not give my all, God has given his all. He has given us his son. He has given us the very best that he could give. And it's enough. It's enough. I don't have to look anywhere else. I don't have to look to anyone else. I can behold the lamb that was slain and the conquering line of Judah that is coming back. And I can be encouraged for a reckless faith. I can be encouraged for a faith that endures suffering, for a faith that takes joy in growth and defeat in sin. Because these are the great and precious promises we have in his word. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. Better to us than we are to ourselves. And so, God, we look to your word We look to the great and precious promises in your word, God. God, you say astounding things that we are partakers of divine nature, that we have all that we need for living a godly life, that we are equal sharers of faith than even the apostles themselves, God. God, I pray that you will encourage us all with these truths, that we will walk out of this place joyful and rejoicing. That the same grace that picks us up when we fall is the same grace that can keep us from stumbling. That we can see victory over sin. We can see purpose fulfilled because it's not on us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.